Up next, to celebrate the Diamond League opener Friday in Doha, is a bonus podcast with American miler Corey McGee. Corey talked to us from Doha, where she is racing the women's 1500 meters versus Olympic champion Faith Kipiegon. Corey's been on a tear of late. In 2021, she made the U.S. Olympic team by finishing second at the Olympic trials. Last year, she made the world championship team by finishing second at USA's. She's on the cusp of the four flat barrier, having run four flat 0.67 in 2021 and four flat 34 in 2022. Could she see the first sub four in Doha? A runner for New Balance. She's part of Team Boss. She's got bigger things in store with the Diamond League final in the United States for the first time ever at the pre-classic in September. Our talk with Corey's 24 minutes. It's up next. After that, we're including our regular podcast, which has our Doha Diamond League preview in it. And if you want a second podcast every week and our Doha recap show, which we'll record live right after the action on Friday, you need to be a Supporters Club member. Join today, let'srun.com slash subscribe. Link in the show notes. Here's Corey. Well, the big question, you're starting your season in Doha, right? You have lots of other options. So why Doha? Let's see. I would say just getting the season going at the Diamond League is a little different. That was something I definitely have thought about the last couple of weeks. It's like a whole new world, really, like to be able to, for the first time, um, like seek out the, you know, toughest competition available for the first race. So I would say that is like slightly intimidating, but at the same time, um, I don't know. I feel like training has been going really well and I knew that Emma and Joe were going to be making this trip. So we just decided for this to be the first one. There wasn't much more to it. Um, I do often start out the outdoor season with an 800. So it's a little different for me this year, not, not doing that, but we've been doing hard stuff in practice. And so I have some comfort in knowing I've done some hard stuff in practice. Yeah, have you done any like time trials or almost all out stuff or like what does that mean? Not quite, like definitely not race effort, but we have done we were in a we were in a routine where once a week we were going and doing this 600 workout and it was a little faster than my 800 pace. So, and that was just like part of the workout. So I I definitely touched like sub 130 multiple times um already this outdoor season so i feel like that was a pretty good indication that i was ready to run like ride around my pr in the 800 and then um yeah i mean other than that we've just been honestly training has been concentrated more on just being in that like medium effort thing and then occasionally doing something hard at the track like maybe once a week so I've run probably more sub 6400s already this year than I did like all year last year combined. So, I mean, yeah, we've just revved it up in a smarter way, but like um I I still feel like I haven't done anything that was like race effort in practice, but 
yeah, so I feel like there's a little bit of a mystery going into this race. Like I know I'm in a good place. I know that I'm in probably the best shape I've ever been at this time of year, but I didn't really race. I didn't race indoor and I haven't raced yet. So <laughs> um, that's like the longest I've ever gone without doing a race, really. Yeah, indoors, you just paced a bunch of people. Was that the plan all along? It was. Um, we made that plan in late October. So not all along. I definitely anticipated doing an indoor season and I, I always love racing a couple times indoor. But I found that like each year as I get older, I um, almost have a harder time. And I, I guess it's also having longer seasons, like having competed at like the Diamond League final and like just racing more later in the year. This past year, it was harder for me to like get excited for indoor. But then in October, I got pretty sick. So that really threw me off for like a solid, I don't know, two or three weeks. I like barely ran. Um, and obviously like, that's not ideal to not run most of November <laughs> and then try to like piece together a competitive indoor season. So I knew that I was going to be pretty stressed out trying to get back to it. And admittedly the, like the year prior that had kind of the same thing had happened. And I was just crawling my way, like just clawing back to fitness through indoor. And also like, I think I got nearly last place at like two races and I was like, well, I don't want to go through that again um so yeah it was a decision that joe and i made and i'm really happy that we did that because it's just not very fun to like come off of your best outdoor season and then like fight tooth and nail through indoor and then like finally get through to the other side so i just didn't really feel like doing that same roller coaster that i did last year makes sense yeah, it was it was a bit taxing, like mentally, I would say more than anything. And like, I love racing, but um, I guess, yeah, I think it has to do with just like getting older, too. I'm like, I just don't have the the energy to go through that. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, I'm glad that I could bypass it and just help my teammates and like pace some people and still get a little taste of racing, but not really have to like indoor the it was just like not a fun time like the couple races during indoor the year before I finally figured it out by the end of the season but even then it wasn't like I wasn't performing quite where I wanted to be so it was nice to just lay low a little bit this year do you find competing is more of a mental grind or a physical grind um I would say like admittedly I would say it's more mental but I really enjoy that side of it so it's not that's not a negative thing like I love I feel like there have been seasons where I wasn't physically prepared and I was still able to like figure it out but for the most part I would say like training is definitely more physical and then uh, competing is more mental um but I really love that like that's my favorite part of racing so but yeah, when you're not fit, it's harder to feel excited to race. <laughs> oh, well, it sounds like you're fit. And as an outsider sort of looking at your career, I feel like, like I said, I won't, I won't fill in your resume. What are the goals for Doha and what are the goals for the year? So the goals for Doha, I think, are just to like really be aggressive and like be um like compete well and i'm not gonna i haven't really thought too much about it i'm just kind of going out there i trust that there are some really amazing women that i'm going to be racing against and if i just like compete well that um i'll be really pleased with the result so 
I also feel like I want to do well in order to ensure that I can secure my spot in races later in the year. And then also, I guess, just like having chosen to, similar to last year, like mostly race, pretty much exclusively race Diamond Leagues leading up to USAs. I think that's really good for me because if I'm used to this level of competition, it helps for me to like approach USAs in a way where I feel really confident. And that was like probably one of the bigger shifts in the last couple of years. Like there were so many years where getting in the U.S. final felt like a major, and it's still really competitive, but it felt like a major accomplishment. And it still does. Like I would never undermine how competitive USA's is. But like once you get used to like mixing it up with the top like 15 women in the world back to back to back, then it's a little bit less nerve wracking getting through the rounds at USA's and um, like just doing your best there. It almost feels like a a little bit less intimidating to me. So I feel like that's kind of like the big goal is just do well in these races leading up to USA's to like make USA's feel like it's not the end goal. And then I can think beyond USA's because for so many years, like I didn't even let my mind go to like, if you make the team, then how are you going to compete at world champs or Olympics or whatever? And it's like for the first time I can actually think, okay, there's a good opportunity and good chance that I can make Team USA. Like I've done it. I feel like very confident. And I can also now think like, and I want to compete well and make that world final and not just like be holding on for dear life at that stage. Like I need to be there and compete well and like show up and expect to like be able to make the final and compete with the best in the world. So I feel like that's what these races they just like make that feel a lot more real and not as hard to put myself in it mentally. So um, I feel like that's kind of just breaking through to that next level. Yeah, that makes sense. Definitely. What's the schedule between now and USA's? So, yeah, I'm, I mean, really there's still like um, a little bit of a question mark. I'm definitely waiting on learning if I'll compete in, Florence and I am expecting to go to Oslo and then I'm still also unsure if I'll compete in Rabat so it's a little bit of if I get into races then I will definitely be there and if not then I'll probably be at um uh race in LA so it's funny because I know that (laughs) that's just like the nature of it I feel like some people already are confirmed in it and some people are still like on the bubble I guess and I'm unfortunately just sitting here like, I think I'm going to be racing in all these um, races abroad, but they're not 100% confirmed yet at this point. How does that work? Is it just based on past accomplishments? If you run well uh, tomorrow, does that help you? It can't hurt, right? Yeah, I definitely, I think it, I think if I run well tomorrow, it will definitely be helpful. Um, I do find it like, I wouldn't go as far as to say frustrating, but it is kind of one of those things where I'm like, okay, well, last year I made the the world championship final and um, I feel like I've done pretty much everything I can do besides like win a medal. Um, So I'm just kind of waiting to like hear about that decision. And I think that's just the nature of it um, because obviously a lot of people are vying to like get a spot on that starting line. Um, but then of course I know that a big part of it is just like the level of competitiveness within the United States. So depending on how many Americans are trying to get into those races, but I, I don't really know if they like 
um, depending on the meet, if they weigh having made Team USA and like how you competed at Worlds or whatever versus just time alone. Because obviously there's other American women who ran faster than me last year. But I mean, it's just a matter of what do they, what are they looking at and thinking that that's like, um, I guess more valuable or something in the race. So I, I don't really know how that decision is made. That's the stuff that we're a little bit on the dark in the dark on, but, um, I think that it's all going to work out. <laughs> I feel like for the most part, like last year I competed really well at the Rome meet. I think I finished like fifth. So, I mean, that was like one of my best races last year. So I'm hoping that, you know, a few of those details definitely like make everything work out. Um, but I loved racing there. And so I definitely want to like get back to get back to Italy. And then Morocco has always been one of the races that I've like really, really wanted to be a part of. So I'm hoping that that one works out too. Besides being the biggest stage to race on, we love the Diamond League. I mean, the sound running meets great, but it's it's not the same stage. But these are amazing cities you get to go to as well. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's like honestly I couldn't believe my eyes when I got here I was like there's a lot more going on in Doha than I realized it's like uh, this sprawling city in the middle of you know nothing and the sea and everything is just beautiful so um it's really cool to get to like travel and do this and of course like having my having teammates with me as well is always like a huge one because I've gone to some of these races by myself and it's still like super enjoyable and and um you know always really thankful but it's really cool to get to do it with like Joe and Emma and not just be like traveling by myself. So yeah, it's, it's great stuff. Yeah. That's gotta be on a personal level, much more enjoyable. Yeah. It's more think. fun. <laughs> and we were asking logistically on our, the regular podcast, like we didn't know how it works, but like, I think eighth place at a diamond league now is 500 bucks. Do they pay, does the diamond league pay for you to come out or does new balance pay for that? Or does it depend on the meat? Um, the Diamond League generally pays for your plane ticket and then they cover the hotel and meals and everything. So it's like a pretty low cost venture. Of course, then you factor in like if you upgrade on the flight or whatever else, like sometimes you break even. But for the most part, it's uh, yeah, everything's covered. And then whatever isn't, hopefully if you have like a contract, you have a certain amount of travel um, allotted. So yeah, it's not like a ton of out of pocket. Um, and it is it is pretty like the the purse is pretty deep. So that's obviously a good thing. Yeah, well, it's good. They, they cover the travel. We kind of figured they did. But we're like, wait, we don't know for sure. And yeah, some athletes are desperate to get in. We're like, what's probably it's at least, you know, a couple grand to get somebody over to Doha. So oh, definitely. I mean, I will say if you like choose your own, obviously, everything has like caveats. But like, if you choose your own travel and it's not like the most affordable, I mean, obviously within reason, they're not like sending you all over creation with some like ridiculous itinerary, but like there's uh, maybe if you're like, well, I'd prefer this flight and there's a price difference, like you have to cover, cover that. But for the most part, no, they do a really good job planning everything and um, it's pretty comfortable. And Obviously, certain meets have like a reputation for being nicer than others, but for the most part, they're all pretty good. They treat us well. And in terms of your career, you said you don't have a medal. Yeah. You've come very close to going sub four. And I feel like, you know, winning USA Outdoors 
is there anything else I'm missing? Kind of big, big goals that you still have out there? Yeah, those are the major goals. Definitely. I would say like, um, the time is really important to me, but I would definitely say that the thing that I think more about is being the U S champion. That's for sure. The one that's, uh, more lingering desire. And then, um, I feel like it's one of those things where I can think about the time and whatnot, but it almost feels like silly when it's less than half a second. I'm like, you know, the time is there. I just have to like run the race ever so slightly different. So I don't fixate too much on that part. Um, I feel really confident that like if I'm in the right race, I can achieve that. But I think I definitely spend more time thinking about how to compete well at USA's and win and if not win be in the top three like by going for the win um and that's kind of just like where my head is at more often and then I would also like love to come away with with wins in like a diamond league race would be huge um again still second to like winning USA's obviously and then I just feel like last year the way that I ran at the world final I'm still like really proud of but I I can definitely like see a see myself like approaching that kind of race differently and finishing higher. So I feel like kind of just getting back to that and um, still giving myself like a chance to be in the mix. But that the, just the way that played out, I def it was almost like a little bit suicidal. I think in hindsight, like I really went after it in the first. 400 and then ended up like leading the second pack so i look back on that race and i'm like I, there's smarter ways to finish higher i feel like you're one of the more accomplished people who, who hasn't broken four <laughs> when you look at the when you look at the times it's crazy like in 2013 you made the world's team your pb was 406 even yeah. when you joined like team boss in 2019 still 406 well, yeah, there were a few years there where I didn't get any faster. <laughs> yeah, so I guess one, you've gotten a lot faster. What do you think explains that? And then also the sport has gotten a lot faster, but sort of you kind of, I mean, you stagnated from a, a period there, but it seems like yeah. you're at a different level now. Oh, I mean, without a doubt, I'm at a different level. There was like an entire, I would say if there's like two parts to being a great 1500 runner, I was 100% like, depending on only one side of it, which was like being speedy. Like I have, I'm, I'm, a, I'm fast, but I had no strength whatsoever. So, um, I was just like completely depending on hoping it was like a, a kind of slow from the gun and then like sprint last, you know, 400 or something, because there was no part of me that like had the strength to run a four minute type race, um, for many years. And I think a little bit of the explanation with being stagnant from like essentially 2013 until 2018, um, 2019 is that I probably ran beyond where I, where my fitness was when I ran 406 the first time. Like when I did that back in 2013, I was probably more in like 409, 410 shape, but I had something on the line, which was like, if I ran the standard that I made Team USA. And so I pretty much just like ran out of my mind in order to run the standard. Um, I mean, and obviously, if you've done it, then like you were 
potentially prepared to do it. But I do look back on that and know that that was like, I sort of like had to rise to that occasion in order to make the team and got into some pro races as a collegiate. So I think probably ran a little bit beyond my capability at that time. And then the following years, I was with a coach, um, being coached by Mark Coogan and really like experiencing what it was like to be a distance runner for the first time, like running more mileage and not being in the weight room as much as I had been at Florida and just like did the complete opposite type of training that I had come from. And it was really difficult for me. Like my body didn't really understand what was going on. And um, I just felt like I just didn't feel like myself for a few years. So definitely like was pretty stagnant at that time, but admittedly was like trying to work on the things that I knew I wasn't very good at and like sought out being coached by Mark and training with Abby D'Agostino for those reasons. Cause I knew that she like really would compliment, um, the stuff that I needed to work on. But I think I was just so far behind that every single workout was just such a shock to the system. And of course, then I had like, then I joined the group out here in Colorado with Joe and he pretty much brought me back to like the most basics. So we started running like six minute pace in workouts rather than like what you would anticipate a professional 1500 runner should be capable of. He, he just like met me where I was at, which was like on one hand, like the skill level of someone who is probably like a freshman in college rather than like where a pro should be. Um, but then of course, if he let me like rip some 400s, then he would see like, okay, you're pretty good at this stuff. It was just like tempos and threshold stuff was like so out of my, just like completely out of my wheelhouse. So that like for sure explains the um, jump in fitness because essentially I was just running on pure, I don't even know, like <laughs> aggression. I have no idea. <laughs> for a few years there, it was just like, all right, wish like hope for the best. And then, yeah, just full send every time. <laughs> And the, the group is doing so well, and you've got people from 800 to the marathon. Who do you do most of your training with? Uh, I do a ton of stuff with Danny Jones. Um, Danny's awesome. She can pretty much like work out with everyone on the team because she's incredibly quick. And then she also like is able to do the more heavy training load that like Emma does with being really good at K's. And um, so Danny and I match up on a ton of stuff. This year, I've probably worked out with Emma a little bit more than I have in the last few years. Um, I guess that just speaks to the fact that some of my uh, strength stuff has gotten a lot better in the last couple of years. And then, um, gosh, I mean, those are probably the two people I do the most stuff with. Of course, Aisha and I do, um, like, we match up really well for our long runs. Um, and then my teammate, Maddie Alm, is, like, one of my favorite people to work out with. So... Pretty much everybody overlaps in some way, but I would say that like Danny and I are probably the most similar. That makes sense. I mean, she's yeah, just my like, fellow fifteen hundred girl. A little bit slower than you, but you know, I mean, two flat eight hundred speed. Yes, exactly. Yeah, she's uh, she has all the skills. She just needs to. Honestly, I think I think this year, like, there will be a, a couple races where she finally gets to kind of put it all put it all out there because she's very much like in a place where she's ready to have a breakthrough. 
It sounds like you in, I don't know, 2021 or... Exactly. <laughs> how far, however far back you want to go. Well, good luck. We're also excited yeah, for thank Emma. You. Your marathoners did well, so... Yeah, ho- the Hopefully you guys did. keep it running. And one other thing, the Diamond League final is in the U.S. this year for the first time ever. Is that yep. important to, to make? It, it is, yeah. Um, yeah, first of all, the team has been doing great. I feel like it's been probably like just the most consistent training that the team's ever had, which is really cool to see and just speaks to like how Joe is always evolving and spends a lot of time like thinking about that kind of stuff. So it's cool. Um, And that was obviously like on display with the marathoners. But yeah, with the Diamond League final being in the US, it's um, similar to last year. I remember like Joe had mentioned uh, probably like six to eight months out from USA's last year this will be a big deal having worlds in the United States. Like that's a team that you really will have a lot of fun if you get to be a part of it. And I kind of like, he made that offhand comment and I was like, Oh, I guess that's like something that I should really continue to think about. And so now thinking about, yeah, the diamond league being in the U S it's uh, it's cool because I feel like for the first time when you talk to like civilians in the world that don't generally know about what track and field has going on, they're like, oh, wait, don't they have something big going on in Oregon this year? And it's like, yay, finally, it definitely trickles down and um, popularizes the sport um, in the U.S. So I feel like it's huge for us and it's really fun to like be a part of that and kind of just see. And just like having family and friends able to attend, you know, they I think they'd rather get a flight to Eugene than Doha, even though they're about the same price these days. <laughs> it's crazy. People in Let's Run are pointing out, you can go to Worlds, Worlds this year, probably cheaper than you could have gone to Eugene last year. So no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, but it's great. We're, we're very excited. And I think Emma and I will continue to show up for Team Boss this weekend. We're feeling pretty good. All right. Well, good luck. Thank you for taking the time. And um, it's a great one. Faith Kipyagan. If you're ready to run, I I, I don't want to, you know, jinx anything, but I think the (laughs) sub four could be this weekend. Thank you. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it. So thank you. I appreciate it. All right, everyone. Here's our regular weekly podcast. If you haven't heard it. If you live in California, and you call yourself a track fan, you better be at the track fest this Saturday, May 6th, at the Mount Sac Stadium. Sound Running is putting this on. It's an amazing meet. They're trying to make this a big deal. Free food trucks with your ticket, and they've got some great action. This is part of the Continental Tour. Women's 5K, that's what we're most excited about. Caitlin Tui versus Josette Andrews, ton of other people. Got Nier Nagusa's outdoor debut at 800 meters. Matthew Centrowitz in the 1500. You can check out all the entries, but this is going to be a cool party atmosphere. Free food trucks. You can buy beer as well. The beer is not free. You got to pay for the beer. But great action in a compact schedule. Two hours. And a concert afterwards. Come on. Support Sound Running. Check it out. Link in the show notes. The On Track Fest, May 6th in Mount Sac. Everyone else, you can watch pay-per-view. I think two-thirds of the money goes to... The athletes. Jesse Williams said, Hey, can you get the word out on this? And we said yes.
Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. The Penn and Drake relays are in the books. The spring marathon season is mostly over and track is heating up. We had a Continental Tour gold meet in Botswana over the weekend. And on Friday, this Friday, it's opening day for the 2023 professional track and field season, the Doha Diamond League. I'm pumped about it. I know the pro shows are pumped about it. We're going to be having a post-race live podcast on Friday. If you're a subscriber to Friday 15, you can get that on demand afterwards as a podcast. Go to let'srun.com slash subscribe. We're super pumped. There's going to be some great matchups there. Shakari Richardson against Sharika Jackson in the 100. Michael Norman against Fred Curley in the 200. There's a loaded men's 3000. Faith Kipigon is in the 1500. Emma Coburn is in the steeple. It's going to be fantastic. So pumped to talk about that. This is Jonathan Gold. I'm joined by Robert and Weldon Johnson, the co-founders of Let's Run.com, the co-hosts of this podcast. We'll talk Doha. We'll talk Penn. But first, we've got to talk about the most important race result of the weekend, the 2023 Stanford Medicine My Heart Counts 5K. In California, the 11th place finisher won Mark Zuckerberg, 38 years old, from Palo Alto in 1934. That is a pretty solid 618 per mile pace. And this result has generated a lot of discussion among the Let's Run.com staff this morning. Some have met it with devastation. Some have met it with resigned acceptance. Some just don't really care that much, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Well, then I'm going to start with you because you had the biggest reaction to this result. Mark Zuckerberg, 1934. How does that make you feel? John, let me interrupt here, Robert. I try to be upbeat. Are you a glass half full or are you a glass half empty person? But when I saw this result, at first I was very excited. I was like, wow, we're going to expose Zuckerberg for cheating in a race. It must be short, not certified. He cut the course or something, and then I look into it. It apparently is legitimate. And it's hard for me to stay upbeat about this one today because normally right at the top of the show, I always, I guess, I didn't even realize what I was doing. I always brag about how littlelet'srun.com is better than Facebook. I say, unlike Facebook, unlike Google, unlike Twitter, you can reach us. Pick up the phone, 844 Let's run eight four four five three eight seven seven eight six, and I still, I guess, we still have that over Zuck. Like, you can still pick up the phone and call Let's Run if you have a problem with our moderation or want to reach us. You still can't do that with Facebook, but on every other objective measure, this little, what I would consider to be a twerp or nerdy dude—not that you know, I was a cross country runner, wasn't like I was Mister Smooth—but on every objective measure, as of adult success, he's ahead of me. He's. We both run internet businesses. His is slightly larger than mine. There's more page views, more revenue. He's married and has three children. I'm married and only have one child. He and now is significantly faster than me. It's just hard for me to put my head. I, if we lined up in a race, isn't he kind of fat? I mean, I don't want to fat shame people, but kudos to this guy for putting. He, it, this is real, right? I mean, this isn't AI generated results and stuff. No, this appears to be in the real human universe and not in the metaverse, legitimate time. And on let'srun.com, look, there are objective measures 
uh, of success deemed by, you know, you can debate about this, but on the Let's Run message board, the three things they use to measure success are attractiveness of your spouse, your yearly salary, and your 5K personal best. And I guess he doesn't have you guys beat in the 5K personal best, but in terms of right now, I think you need to write add an addendum. Unlike Facebook, we can't run 1934 in the 5K. I mean, I can, but I don't know about you guys. I'm not so sure about that, John. I see a post right here called from Internet Winner saying right now, Zuck is currently faster than the entire staff at Let's Run.com. I'm pretty sure for the record you could beat that. And John, I'm going to view this. I was going to go negative and say I feel old. Today is the 50th birthday of one of my best friends. The first to get there. Love you, Eric Hawkins. And in the over 40 soccer league, I noticed one of the younger guys is a little bit faster than me. But I'm going to use this as a call to action. I said Kier D'Amato's husband going out and time trialing miles was going to inspire me. It didn't work. But if Mark Zuckerberg can run 19.15 for 5K, I got to get under 18 minutes. I got to get out there training. 19.34. You got some, a little bit of wiggle room there. Well, then. I somehow have to get under 18, I think. I don't even know if that's possible at my age, but it'll help my soccer. Anyone out there got speed tips for how to get really fast at soccer with no work? I would like that. But, Zuck... Good for you, man. And because back in the day, he used to run and he ran really slow. So maybe this jujitsu shit is helping him. Maybe the visualization of the meta, maybe this is the future of training. You just pretend to be in the metaverse, pretend you're a mediocre runner and you get faster. I don't know. If you run miles in the metaverse, does that help your human running ability? They say if you visualize free throws, so maybe it works for running too. Zuck, if you want to buy Let's Run.com, you probably don't even have to get a hundred million. I am confused by one thing Wilson just said. His best friend turned 50 and he's playing an over soccer, 40 soccer league. I don't know how that's possible because this summer I'm going to be turning 40. But I think the only solution here is to save some face, though, is. And my wife's a very private person. Weldon's wife is not nearly as private, so we've got to go with her. Get a couple good, sexy photos, even if she's eight months pregnant, and and we have a contest. Weldon's wife versus Zuck's wife. I think it's going to be a blowout. Catherine, and no, 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 no question here. So Weldon will have that to hold his hat on, and I will jump on the bandwagon because I'm sure my wife would, would crush. I don't even know what Mark's wife looks like, but Weldon and I have the most beautiful wives in the world. They've tied each other for first place yet again this year. Normally, this is the part in the podcast where I'd step in and say we need to delete that segment, but I'll I'll defer to Weldon on that, whether you want to keep it in the podcast or not. Because we're insulting Zuckerberg's wife? I assume she's very beautiful. Or is this like the Donald Trump, Ted Cruz thing where you insult someone and then a few months later you they praise you? We can leave it on. Everyone's wives are beautiful. Congrats to Zuck. Seriously, like... What pace is it, John? 612 per mile, I think they're saying? 618. Okay, I need to get under six minutes a mile for 5K. I need to get under six minutes a mile for one mile, but... All right, well, that's quite enough about the 
Stanford Medicine, my heart counts 5K. Let's talk about some of the stuff that our listeners may have actually watched over the weekend. I want to go to Penn. Penn Relays. I want to talk about the men's collegiate four by mile. This is the race I've been thinking about ever since Washington had those guys run sub four back in January and February. I was like, we got to get them out to Penn, see if they can go sub 16, have them take on some of the best in the country, see what happens. This race, some people might be complaining, oh, they didn't come close to 16 minutes. They slowed down on the ankle leg. I'm not complaining. I thought this thing was freaking awesome. I don't mind that they slowed it down. It led to a crazy finish. And the biggest thing I loved about this race, which was won by Villanova, by the way, huge anchor run by Liam Murphy, went for about 7th or 8th with 200, 250 to go to winning this thing out in lane 3. What I love is just how much it means to these athletes, especially the Villanova kids. No school takes Penn more seriously than Villanova. There's a good interview with Marcus O'Sullivan, who's the Villanova coach uh, after this race. And he was essentially saying, look, other teams, if they have a strong team, they'll fly in and run the pen relays. But then they might go have a few people graduate. They're not there every year. Villanova, they're out there every year. They treat this thing basically like an NCAA championship. Like Marcus O'Sullivan was saying the atmosphere there for him or for, for a Villanova athlete running there, because he was also a Villanova guy, he said the only thing that compares is the World Championships. Maybe the Olympics would as well. Obviously, he ran that. But for Villanova, they treat this super super seriously. And I th- they weren't the favorites on paper in this thing. Wisconsin had won the DMR the day before. Washington, obviously, we know their talent on their team. They have two NCAA individual champions, Joe Wascom and Luke Hauser. So to see Villanova win it, and then also to see how much the guys celebrated when they won this race. It was like they were celebrating like they won an NCAA title. And to me, it was cool because in track and field, so many of these meets just don't matter in the regular season. It's like, oh, it's all about qualifying for NCAAs or it's all about getting a world championship standard. This one, you can win a pen relays wheel, add yourself to the legacy of that program. They beat a very good Washington team, some very good other teams as well. Oklahoma State, the DMR champs are in this. It was just really cool to see the race, to see it actually matter, and to see Villanova spring the upset. I, I love this race. I, too, like meets that matter. And this one kind of, yeah, does matter for the teams that show up. Oklahoma State came this year. Although, I got to admit, I mean, it was a rainy day. The crowd at Penn, uh, the upper bowl was completely empty, and the bottom bowl... I don't know. Without the Jamaican fans, it's got to be 90% African-American. And that's great. But why aren't the distance fans showing up? Like, I don't know. We, we, we've got to do something to keep this. I, I was almost thinking, this sounds blasphemy because John thinks everything should be broadcast live on the internet. What if you don't broadcast Penn live on the internet? You, you can, they still tape it. They film it. So you can watch it after the fact. It's part of your entry fee or whatever, but to get people in the stands, because I'm a little bit worried about the crowd, but I was not as thrilled by what happened on the anchor leg, nor were the commentators on flow track when I wasn't watching this one live, but afterwards I went and watched the video and 
fast forwarded to near the anchor leg when they hand off. And I loved how Hayden Cox and Trevor Fulkerson handled this. I'm going to play the clip now of them handing off from the third to fourth leg. They're going to hand off at 12.03. So the collegiate record is 16.03. The pin relays record is 16.04. That's Both of those are well within reach if you break four. If you go sub, if you run a 356, you could break 16 minutes. And this is what happened. 1203, 12.04, 12.03 mid is going to be the split. We're going to need to see a 456. And look at these guys. It's not going to happen. Yeah, 356 would be. Oh, they, they are the jogging. The of a lot of these guys, but we've seen this so many times. Oh, they, they are the jogging up front. Cruise. I hate to see it. Oh, they are jogging. Oh, they are jogging. That's how I felt. I love the announcing by those two guys, by the way. I, I feel like a big part of the announcing is to be anticipating what's going to happen and then talking about it as it happens. It's like so many times I'll be watching a race. It's like, it's like this, what's the downhill mile in Boston, the 16th mile? There's never anticipation. Like the next mile is going to be super fast or right, reaching Harvard Hill is going to be super slow. Here they were anticipating like, okay, we can get the record. No, it's over instantly. See, I have a different take on that, Robert. In general, I think they were fairly informative, but they dwelled on that sub-16 thing for half the anchor leg. It was just almost ruined the race for me, honestly. All they were talking about was how slow the race was going. I'm like, guys, all right, it's not going to happen. We get it. It's a little bit disappointing, but we still got a great race going on. Let's focus on that. And they did eventually, but them just constantly complaining, oh, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Like, Move on. Focus on the race. Anyway, I do think there is a question to be asked, though, about the strategy here from some of the teams. Because I think one of the things that was mentioned on the broadcast is when you put a bunch of milers together, often does go slow because everyone thinks they have the best kick. And in the end, only one guy does have the best kick. So I'm looking at these teams. You've got some strong squads, but Washington going in, you know, I talked to Andy Powell, I texted him and I said, you know, are they going for the record? And he just said, no, we're just going for the win. But in retrospect, I'm wondering if you're Washington, I know the conditions weren't ideal for running fast. It was rainy, you know, low mid fifties, not that different than what they're used to training in in Seattle, I imagine. But if you're Washington and you just have, you have Joe Wascom and Lou Hauser, who are 351 and 352 milers. You have Sam Ellis and Aaron All, who are, I think, 353, both of them. If you have the fastest PRs on paper and you know Penn often comes down to a kick, wouldn't your best strategy to win be to try to push every leg? And I know you're going to be kind of serving as the rabbit for some of them, but eventually you should be able to build up a gap with those PRs on paper. Am I off base here, Robert? Would you have played it like they, they did and just trust that your NCAA mile champion will outkick everyone in the anchor, or would you try have tried to speed it up a little bit more? John, I think in a perfect environment, that's their best strategy. But it's kind of crappy weather. And what's universally true of all milers, John? They think they have the best kick? Yeah, everybody overestimates their kick or somehow... It's fine if it comes down in a kick because you're still in it with 200 meters to go. I, I don't know. But props to former podcast guest Gary Martin. 
with the fastest leg of the day, 358.24 on the second leg for Virginia. And props to Liam Murphy of Villanova because he did not qualify for NCAAs indoors. He was on their DMR. They finished 11th at NCAAs. Last year outdoors, he did not qualify for NCAAs. In fact, he was only 10th in the Big East 1500. Now, he's run 339. I'm wondering, like, maybe he fell or something. I'm not sure. But you wouldn't think that this guy going up against the NCAA mile champion in Luke Hauser, the NCAA 3K champion in Fouad Masaudi, Adam Spencer, who had carried Wisconsin to the DMR win the day before, you wouldn't say this guy is going to beat him, but they ran pretty pretty competitively in the DMR as well uh, on Friday. Villanova was second with Murphy anchoring, and he said after that he thought he went a little bit too early, and that's what cost him the win. And he comes back the next day and gets redemption and wins the DMR on the anchor leg. So huge weekend for Nova, huge weekend for Liam Murphy, second and first in those two relays against these great schools. Really fun to watch. The the DMR, sorry, the mile, the four by mile, the top six teams all ran 16-14. It was just madness coming down the home straight. And Villanova, Washington, Wisconsin, Virginia, Georgetown, Duke, Oklahoma State, Michigan, just people coming from all over the country to run this meet. I hope this continues. I hope that even though, you know, OK State only got seventh in this meet, they still come back to Penn when they have good teams because one of the reasons we can say the Penn Relays matters is because the top distance schools will bring their top milers and run competitively. And it's a big deal to win a wheel. And if suddenly the top schools stop going, it doesn't mean as much. You're not celebrating as hard. So props to all these coaches and athletes for coming out and fielding top teams. Props for creating a great race. I know the time didn't materialize, but I, I'm so happy that Penn is still a meet that matters on the schedule to so many coaches and teams. John, you asked about what would I would do if I was coaching. I mean, if my guy's PR is averaged up to 1530 and I've got the NCAA mile champion on the anchor, I'm probably not worried about it. I think either way I should win. Particularly when my guys are fresh and everybody else has run the DMR the day before. But it is hard to lead. People aren't used to it. I mean, I was asking John Kellogg, how much slower is it if you go time try a mile versus running in a race? He's like, well, unless you're like Henry Rohner or Jacob Ingebrigtsen, you might run four or five seconds slower. So even on the anchor, like them, the idea of these guys going out and running 356 from the front, you need to be like be like a 351, 352 guy. Now, maybe a couple of more that, but, you know, it's just people think, I get the stick next to four other guys that are pretty good next to me. I'm not going to lead the whole thing and lose. But if you, if you had broken them earlier, just kept trying and trying and trying, maybe it would have worked. We'll point out, though, that my only one person in the entire race, I think, broke four was Princeton University alum, Sam Ellis. That's not true at all. We just said Gary Martin had the fastest leg of anyone, and that was the same leg as Sam Ellis. There were actually... That, that was the only leg where anyone broke four was leg two, and there was four guys who did it. Since we just mentioned UVA, the next day, Gary, on Sunday, got out his iPhone, I presume, and filmed his teammate, Breaking four. Don't have his name in front of me, John, but he's the seventh UVA, seventh guy on the UVA team to break four 
sixth this year. There's another guy that did it last year. He's also run 340 and 1500 this year. So they have, like Washington, they have seven sub four minute milers on the team, which is impressive. I remember on the message board a couple years ago, people were ripping Vin Lanana and saying he's lost his magic. And I just laughed. I said, this guy is such a good recruiter and he's not an idiot in terms of coaching. Like they'll get it together. And I know they're not at the NAU level or anything like that, but I think that doubting Vin Lanana's ability to create a successful college program is beyond stupid. Yeah. Jack Eliason is the, guy who did it for the Cavaliers on Sunday. I will say Washington currently has eight guys on their roster who have broken four because they've got Leo Dushback who did it in high school but hasn't done it this year. Now, this UVA kid was so excited to break four. He was grinding it out, but there was one negative. I mean, I, I love the celebration that he was having with his teammates. He looks like the happiest guy on the earth. But he did lose to a high schooler. So I don't think I would let that bother me. Normally, if I'm a top collegiate runner and I lose to a high schooler, I'm going to be upset. But if I bust four for the first time, I'm going to be just like, yeah, I'm celebrating all the way to the line. Is this just going to be a weekly trend? If you lose to a high schooler, you're not allowed to enjoy anything. Noah Lyles last week got beat by a high schooler. His season's over, according to Rojo. Now, Rocky Hansen, by the way, was the high schooler who... Broke four. He's the 18th high school boy to break four. I'm, I'm trying to think, would I be able to name all of them if I had to? No way, John. Oh, you don't think I can do it? <laughs> yes, I don't think I'm, I'm going to try. All right, I'm going to try right now then. Hold on. Let me go to, Wiki, let me go to Wikipedia. Well, he's not going to say a name that's wrong. All right, this might take a minute or two but hopefully it can prove my worth. Okay, I can cut out silence. Let's go, John. Start naming them. Rocky Hansen, Simeon Birnbaum, Connor Burns, Leo Doshbach, Hobbs Kessler. That's five. I'm counting with my hand. Just want to make sure I'm not missing anyone from the recent years. Reinhardt Harrison, Reed Brown, Grant Fisher, Drew Hunter, Matthew Mayton. That's 10 if you're counting at home. Michael Slagowski, Alan Webb, Jim Ryan, Lucas Vosbikas, Tim Danielson, Marty LaCurie. How many am I missing? Two, I believe. I might have miscounted. This is epic. I believe two, John, from typing as fast as two. Robert's counting. All okay. he had to do was count, and he can't keep this accurate. Colin Salmon. Wow. Well, we don't even know what he said. So have you been writing him down, Weldon? Oh. Trying to. Is that definitely one I haven't named still? Okay, I don't want to waste the entire show. If I'm, Did I say Rocky Hansen, the guy who just broke it? I don't see Weldon's list. I'm looking up. I'll look up the list. I'll see if there's one I didn't name. I didn't say Gary Martin. Oh my God. That was the one guy I didn't say. We were j- literally just talking about him. I can't believe I forgot him. <laughs> oh my I God. I thought you either missed Gary Martin or Hobbs Kessler. So you knew them all. I said Hobbs Absolutely Kessler. amazing. Oh Jonathan Gold, I- the smartest person on the internet in the world, really. Well, I just want to say I, well, I miss Gary Martin. I don't count that. We mentioned his name. I didn't bring him up. I can't believe he was a podcast guest last year. 
Sorry, Gary, but I just wanted to be able to try that because pretty soon I'm not going to be able to. There's going to be like three or four more kids who do it in 2023 and then the list is going to be too long. But Well, that was it because I was wondering, I hadn't said anything and we didn't have the sub four high school on here. And I'm like, is this the time? Maybe it's happened before us. Someone goes sub four in high school. We don't talk about it. It might have happened once last spring. I'm not sure. And then Robert mentioned it, but he didn't mention the name. I wasn't going to say anything. I was trying to see if we could get away with it. I think the sub four high school has officially jumped the shark, though. I mean, I don't want to. Again, this is what like what happened earlier this year when Track and Field News said they were going to stop counting the additions to the U.S. sub four club. It's still a huge accomplishment for an athlete. Like the, a, a, you should celebrate the hell out of breaking four minutes in the mile. But we just know now a sub four mile is closer to what 403 might have been a few years ago or 404 something like that the very best u.s high schooler we're going to be having probably two or three kids a year doing it from every year now on you know year on out and there's going to be close to 100 doing it in the ncaa and that's you just got to adjust that you can still celebrate it but it's not the rare once every 10 years feat that it might have been a decade ago. Yet another idea I never followed up on the Let's Run Sub 4 t-shirts I was going to send to everybody. But congrats to Rocky who is attending Wake Forest. I always like to build up the new programs as well as Jack Eliason. I loved him celebrating. As he should. Yeah, it was awesome. All right. Anything else from Pen relays you guys wanted to hit. We've had a few pro events. I would say the pro result that stood out to me from Penn was Josette Andrews. We were talking, this is her first outdoor race for the On Athletics Club. She ran well at Milrose indoors. She was second. We were curious how she would do facing a decent field. She dominated. She ran 404 to get the win. Obviously not a crazy fast time, but she beat the reigning NCAA champion, Cynthia Vissa, her teammate at OAC, by more than two seconds. Beat Anna Camp Bennett, the 2021 NCAA champ in the 15, by more than four seconds. I just thought this was a good win for Josette Andrews. She's going for a fast 5K at the Sound Running Track Fest this weekend. She seems to be in a good place right now in her first year with OAC. And her first year full-time altitude training. Is it crazy to ask, is this woman going to win the U.S. title this year? If you're looking for someone to make a breakthrough, I think it's her. She's already run sub four in the past. That 359 may turn into 356, 357. Sinclair Johnson, we'll get into this in a second, just lost to Nikki Hiltz. I don't see Hiltz getting down to the 356, 357 range. I, I don't think it's a crazy question to ask. I think it's going to be, we were talking like, oh, is which is it less competitive to make the men's team or is it more competitive? I mean, you've got Andrews, Hiltz, Sinclair Johnson, Heather McLean. Maybe we have some collegian announces themselves. We've got Corey McGee, who's made the last two teams. So it's not going to be easy. And I think, would I, I wouldn't be shocked though if Jose Andrews, she seems to be moving in the right direction. Sinclair Johnson, I think it's too early just to base off one road mile in April to say she's taking a step back. I would still have her as the tentative favorite, but 
Josanne Andrews is going third in the Diamond League final in 1500. Absolutely, she could win the US title this year. I think that's probably going to be her best event in terms of hoping for global success rather than the 5K. I mean, 404.8, John, with a 63-second last lap, it's just not that impressive to me. Granted, it's a pin relays record. We've had what? I should know the number. Like 100 and... I'm going to guess. 27 pin relays. I don't think they don't have that number on their website at the moment. But she broke a pen relays record that stood for 27 years, set by Julie Henner back in 1996, a.k.a. Julie Benson. So, yeah, I agree with you, Weldon. That's a good way to contextualize it. That's not going to win you medals on the global stage, but for a race at the end of April in less than ideal weather, right ahead of running a fast 5K, I think it's encouraging result for Josette Andrews. Speaking of Josette Andrews, I'm way more excited about this weekend. We promoted this a bit in the intro. I told Jesse Williams we'd try to get butts in the seats. This sound running meet on Saturday night. The women's 5K, I think, is the most exciting event for distance running fans. If you're in California, go to this meet. They have With your ticket, you get free food trucks? This seems like one of those things that's a mistake. When you offer free food to people, they take you up on it. You can also buy beer. There's a concert. It's a compact schedule. It's at Mount Sac, the new beautiful stadium. So let's run fans. Go go check this out. But you have Josette Andrews versus Caitlin Tui. That's the matchup for me. I and mean, there's a bunch of other, like, there's some other sub-15 women in here. Caitlin Tui's never been a sub-15-10. But I'm really intrigued what Tui can do in this race. And I, I want to see what Andrews is going to do. I mean, Whitney Morgan's in the field. Emily Infield, is this right, John? Emily Infield, Ellie Hennis. You've got a couple Brits with Jess Warnerjud and Melissa Courtney Bryant who have both broken 15. So this is going to be women going for sub-15. Pretty much everyone in this field, I think, is going to be targeting, targeting that number. Obviously, it's going to be the most exciting if Tui does it. No U.S. collegian has ever broken 15, but a sub-15 by no means is a guarantee she wins this race. It's going to be pretty deep. Yard Nagus outdoor opener at 800. Matthew Centrowitz in the 1500. I am more excited about the Diamond League, though. I'm excited for both. We get track and field opening day on Friday. It's always one of my favorite days of the year. Then we get the U.S., it's dessert on Saturday. I don't want to see. We can talk about this meet more on the on the Friday fifteen show. But if the winning time is in the fourteen fifties, it's going to disappoint me. Unless Tui wins it in like fourteen fifty something. I, I really want to see a time in the. It needs to be in the fourteen forties. I think it. It's certainly possible with this field. You've got a bunch of women who've already run in the fourteen fifties. It's going to take a big effort, I think, to win. And people are looking to run fast. They've been building that spring training around hitting a standard in this race. So the standard is 1457 for the world championships. So maybe it's going to be paced to that, but I imagine there are a number of women in this field who think they can run significantly under 1457. So we'll see, but yeah, I'm definitely excited for that. And obviously we have the diamond league on Friday as well. So I wanted to revisit our conversation on high school sub four milers because there is one of them who posted, I thought, one of the more impressive results I saw over the weekend. 
and that's Colin Solomon of Northern Arizona. Now, Robert pointed this out in the week that was. He didn't have the smoothest transition to college. He was 151st in NCAA cross in November after winning the running lane title the year before. Indoors, didn't qualify for NCAAs. But what he's done outdoors, I think, has been very strong for a true freshman. 13.42 in the 5K. Then he runs 3.38 for 1,500, and now 146.99 for 800 meters. That's a personal best of over a second. So to be able to run 146 and 13.42 within a couple weeks of each other, that's very good range for a freshman. And to me, this is just a sign that, hey, sometimes when you go from training at sea level your entire life, I know you've been to altitude for maybe a camp or two, but you've lived in California, then you go to Flagstaff and 7,000 feet at the top program in the country. Sometimes it can take you a little while to get adjusted. It did not take that long for his teammate, Nico Young, his high school, went to the same high school to get adjusted. But Salman, first few months, he's not doing anything crazy. Now suddenly, not only is he running 1342 for 5K, he's running an 800 PB, 146. 146 is a true freshman when you're not an 800 runner. I think that's really good. So I think I'm very impressed by what I've seen from Colin Salmon this spring. It's promising for U.S. distance running. Yeah, tremendous range. But it's still crazy, right? Like, I mean, he's a freshman in high, in college. We need to remember that. But none of these times make NCAs these days. I mean, you got to qualify outdoors, so hopefully you can make it. But there's a chance he can run these times and not even make NCAs. And maybe finding an event is a good problem to have. Like that speed and that endurance, he'll figure it out. I guess maybe is is like right now. Like I want him to have an event that he's super competitive in, and maybe I assume you can develop that, or can you just be an all around good distance runner and not good enough in one event? Oh, yes, the jack of all trades, master of none. I mean, to me, if you're doing thirteen forty two and you can run 146 for 800. That means you should be a 1500 guy, right? Normally, that's logically what we'd assume. I guess we'll see. Like, But being a successful 1500 guy at the collegiate level, it's not all about personal bests. It's not about what your 800 PR is. It's can you manage the rounds? Can you run well tactically? And that that's the other thing that I think is a great... That's what why you go to college if you're calling someone. Okay, yeah, you get the experience with your teammates you get a great coach and mike smith but also if you do want to be a miler long term you get this tactical experience of having to race through championships you have to qualify out of the west region then you have to qualify for the NCAA final if you're good enough then that's what it's all about the pro level is running these championships and knowing tactically how to advance and what sort of steps to take it's a great proving ground so he's not only going to be developing physically but also Mentally as well. You say that's why he goes to college. I see what you're saying, but if you're running 338 and 1342 as a pro, you're getting your doors blown off. I was happy for him. I feel like we live in an instant judge society. Like, oh, he should leave, transfer, blah, 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 go to UCLA. I mean, people were joking on the forums. Someone said, Coach Brosnan would have had him run 146.89. I think it was a joke, but 
it's just I don't know. Give it some time. Like I think you're right, John. It takes time to adjust to college, altitude, etc. It's encouraging to get a full second PB. As I said, he's now run one. He's now run under 147, the same number of times as Jakob Ingebrigtsen. They've both done it once in their life. But the reason why I stand the pros in the college ranks is, is unless you're getting just paid a shit tone like Hobbs Kessler, it's hard to be a pro. I mean, you guys realize, like, okay, 146.99 and 13.42, okay, pretty good. I mean, Matthew Centrowitz, admittedly, he's the Olympic champion. His PBs are 144 and 13 flat. Yeah, I'm. I'm wasn't suggesting Colin Salmon should have gone pro last year unless he had a huge sponsor offer. So he ran 356 as a high schooler, but Hobbs Kessler and was significantly faster. Like Hobbs Kessler was the kind of guy. Okay, yeah, that's enough talent where you can get a pretty good deal. I don't think anyone was going to be banging down Colin Salmon's doors to run. Yeah, to offer him some huge contract after rank 356. Let's talk a little bit about this meet in Botswana, the Botswana Golden Grand Prix, part of the World Athletics Continental Tour Gold. Well, John, if we're talking about 19-year-olds making their mark, that's Sile Tabogo, the world under-20 100-meter champion, Botswana's finest, competing before the home crowd, Tried to pull off the 100-200 double. He's a little bit older than Colin Salmon. Colin Salmon's 19 years, 6 months old. This guy's two months shy of his 20th birthday. He got second in the 100, 991. Is that right? Wind did, yeah. And then he won the 200 in the world-leading 1987. Yeah, I thought this was a great outing for him. Robert, I don't I think it's safe to say he's not going to be running at Oregon this year, even though we've been wondering about it for quite some time. He has not enrolled, but it was good. He got beat by Ferdinando Manyala, who's having a very strong start to 2023. He ran 9.78 with a 2.3 wind. It was at a little bit of elevation as well, but those are strong times in the sprints. Then 200, yeah, Tobogo, he beat Aaron Brown. He's beat Joe Fambula, he beat the Olympic champion Andre de Grasse. Granted, not all these guys I don't think are in tip-top shape right now. Certainly not the Grasse, who ran 20.41. But 1987 at age 19, it's fantastic. And it made me think, Robert mentioned this in the week that was, we have all these young sprint phenoms right now that are still all teenagers between Tobogo, Arian Knighton, Buwaji, Nakrumi, the Jamaican high schooler who just broke 10 at Champs a few weeks ago, as well as Isama Singa, the U.S. high schooler who ran 19.97 over the weekend, and Blessing Afrifa, the world under-20 champion from Israel last year. They're all under-20 at the moment. And it made me wonder, of those guys, like, who would you most want to be right now? Who do you think has the highest ceiling between Knighton, Tobogo, Isama Singa, who is a year younger than most of them? He's 18. The others are all 19. I mean, I feel like the obvious answer here is Knighton. He's already a world championship medalist. He's already fourth fastest all time in the 200. But am I wrong about that? And who would you have ranked behind him? 
Well, it's pretty interesting, right? If there was a track and field draft like in the NFL, who do you draft first, second, third, fourth, and fifth? I mean, Knighton's already arrived. He's global medalist as a high schooler. Now, Tobogo, I mean, he's won the world junior title two years in a row with 100. I was so impressed by this 200 because Tobogo's been more known as a 100 man. I mean, he's won the silver in the world juniors the last two years in the 200. And now he runs this 1987. But he's just, he's just so smooth to me. Like, when I watch the 100, I can't, it doesn't even look like the same sport between him and Ferdinand Omanyala. And I know Omanyala beat him. Omanyala is just this big, giant jack guy that looks like a bowling ball. And it looks like he's trying so hard. And Tobogo just looks so relaxed and fluid naturally. I feel like that's going to progress to the next level. How tall is he, John? I think of the heights of him and Knighton. According to Google, he is six feet tall. But here's the interesting thing about Tobogo and Knighton, and where you can make a debate. One, Tobogo is the better 100 meter runner of those two. Knighton is essentially a 200 meter specialist. I think at this point, he probably could break 10 in the 100, but I don't know. He hasn't shown anything yet that would say he's going to be like, you know, a future medalist in the hundred and maybe he starts running it more often and he gets that but at this point tobogo is the stronger prospect in the 100 he has the world under 20 record 991 which he ran at world juniors last year he was celebrating early in that race too he could have run a lot faster he is the youngest man in history as well to break 10 seconds tobogo is so it's kind of a debate like I think Knighton could be like the greatest 200. He could be the world record holder in the 200, you know? And Tobogo, you know, he's very impressive, but he hasn't gotten closer. You know, he, Knighton is closer to that level right now, 1949 versus 1919, as opposed to, you know, Tobogo is 9.91 and 9.58. That's like way in their future, but you could sway me into this Tobogo versus Knighton debate. Well, John, you said he could break the 200 rule record. And I'm like, well, if you break the 200 rule record, you have to be good at the hundred. That's how it works. But that's how it works these days, right? Like Michael Johnson never figured out the hundred. It seems to now everyone, like you're these 400 guys dropping down to the hundred and having success. That used to blow my mind. And now I'm like, well, of course you run the 200. You can run a good hundred, but maybe that's not the case anymore. I don't know. It seems harder because a hundred times are faster than they were in Michael Johnson's era. In Michael Johnson's era, you didn't need to be nearly as fast. But you have to pick Knighton, right? Like nineteen four nine. That's vastly superior to what these guys are. But there is something to be said. I love how Tobogo runs. He's so smooth. And then Isama Singa. Well, you said Tobogo's the youngest guy to break ten. Well, that's in legal win conditions. I mean, it's just a matter of time. Get the guy in a legal race, he does it. But, and he just ran a legit 1997 win legal 200. And this guy was running like 10-4 last year. Like, what the hell? Like, but to me, he did this guy, that kid doesn't look as smooth to me as Tobogo, right? It's just, there's some style to also the way Knighton runs. He's like a damn gazelle, man. Like, it's more sort of out of, out of the bolt mold, I think. 
look, Knighton, I guess he's, I looked it up. He's 6'3". Is that right? So he's taller than Tobogo. He looks just as move. Guy was fourth in the Olympics with grown men at age 17. He looks baby face. I'm still not, John says he's not convinced about the 100. I mean, Tobogo is one of the most massive talents we've ever seen, but so is Knighton. It wouldn't shock me. Now, it would shock me if Noah Lyles ends up being the 100 a world champion, particularly world record holder. Uh, I, I, again, I, I don't think he's going to get the world record in the 200. Maybe that's me overreacting to him losing to a high score. It would not shock me. If you're looking at Usain Bolt 2.0, the guy to beat all of Bolt's records, uh, it, it wouldn't shock me if it was Aaron Knighton, and it also wouldn't shock me if it was Tobogo. Either one of them. It looks like Tobogo might be training in the U.S., John. He was racing in Florida, so I, I like that because he was going to come over here for college. The best sprint coaches. I'm biased. I would say generally based in the U.S., there's just more athletes to work with. Apologize to whoever's coaching Jamaica? Marcel Jacobs. Oh, Charlie Francis and them, yeah. Oh, Jamaica. Well, I meant Northern Hemisphere. Steven Francis. Whatever. Moving on. Charlie Francis. One Mills. John Charlie Francis is different sprint coach. I mean, was based around here. Anyway. Uh, well, I, I do. No, I'm I'm not saying that Knighton couldn't become this massive talent in the 100 meters. I'm just saying he hasn't really run it enough in these big meets for us to to know that yet. But yes, if you're running 19.49, obviously you're going to be able to run pretty darn fast in the 100 meters. Uh, okay, yeah. You have to be one of these athletes. Who do you pick? I guess it's... Well, it's also like, what do you want? Do you want global fame? Do you want... Because being an American, Knighton's going to get more of a share of the spotlight than Let's Seal Tobogo from Botswana. So it's sort of dependent on like what are you looking for? Who do I have? Who do I think is the best chance to be king of the sprints, which is a future hundred meter global champion? I think it's probably Tobogo. But who has the best chance at a world record? I would say it's Knighton. Like it's <laughs> it's exciting. Knighton. If anyone can be the bolt, it's Knighton. Because I, I, he's closer in the two hundred. Yeah, I think I choose to be Knighton. But th- these guys, these guys are all phenomenal. We're so lucky to be living right now. They, like in a few years, this could be really great. And we're not even talking about like a Bleak Seville who's like twenty one, or Akeem Blake who I think is also twenty one. The young Jamaicans. It's going to be very exciting to follow. And I feel I do feel like As- Asama Singa, he's getting attention now. But imagine if Knighton didn't exist and we've just got this guy who's threatening to break 10. He's also breaking Noah Lyle's high school record. I mean, Knighton broke that record. I think we all agree that the high school record shouldn't just be ignored because someone's a professional. Their times don't count. But if Knighton hadn't come along and just reset what was capable, a singer would be blowing people's minds right now, running faster than Noah Lyle's was as a high schooler. Well, I think part of the problem with the singer is we don't know who he's going to be running for. I mean, we had the U.S.-based high schooler who was blowing away all the women's records. We didn't pay that much attention to her. I know the, the sprint people did. I don't even remember her name. Otto Bolden started coaching her. She runs for Jamaica. John, help me out. Rihanna Williams. But if we're going to – this whole idea of, oh, we ignore times because they're pro. Knighton was a high schooler up until last year. All of his times should count for the high school mark. If we're going to ignore times because they're quote-unquote pro, then we need to not count – then Caitlin Tui is ineligible – for the collegiate record this weekend because she's accepted money from Adidas. And according to these 
old timers at old track and field news, if you're being paid, your, your marks don't count. So that's an antiquated way to think about it. Are you in high school? Are you legitimately in college and college and college age? Not if you're some 45 year old person going to community college. If you're so. 45 and you're breaking collegiate records, I'm I'm going to inclined to give it to you at that age. That's pretty impressive. But no, Asinga, the idea that Asinga is more of a high schooler than Arian Knight, I just don't buy it. He is not competing for his high school in these meets. He's not completing the Florida State meet this season. And okay, he doesn't have a pro contract with Adidas, but... Knight was going to high school too. They're both going to high school. They're both racing against top pro competition, one unattached, one with Adidas. But it's they're basically the, the same, you know. And the idea that one should count as a high school record and one shouldn't, I just don't agree with that. Plus, Knight went to his regular high school, right? Asinga moved from Missouri to Florida to go to basically a sports academy. I mean, it's basically the equivalent of going to a, a D one college program as close as you can get in high school. So, speaking of pro high schoolers or whatever it's called. Asinga, he's in Florida. Do you know how many track meets are in Florida in the spring? Yet they fly to Lubbock, Texas to run 1997? Like, Lubbock's not the easiest place in Texas to get to, John. Like, that's just crazy to me. I don't even, I don't understand that, but they went to altitude maybe? I don't know. <laughs> altitude or good competition? I'm not, I'm not sure. But that's again, that's sort of reinforcing my point that there isn't much of a difference between him and Arian Knighton. A lot of these high school kids, and every, even in distance events, they're flying all over the country to chase these marks. And okay, not all of them are getting paid, but yeah. You know, the distinction between high school and pro, if you're still going to high school classes and taking classes, I don't really mind if you're getting paid by Adidas on the side. All right. Another sprint event that caught my eye over the weekend was this meet at Texas, specifically Gabby Thomas, the Olympic bronze medalist in the 200. She ran the 200 there. She won it in 22-21, but then she comes back the next day and she runs the 400 and wins it in a personal best of 49-68. And I wasn't shocked by this time because five years ago, I remember watching Robert Johnson and Bill Spaulding on the Ivy League Pep's broadcast, they called Gabby Thomas winning the 4x4 epic anchor leg as part of like a quadruple for Harvard University. And she split, I believe, a 49-44 in that race. Robert, was it 49 or was it 50? It was something incredible. 49-44, one of my best broadcasting moments. That's why I like this flow track 4 by mile because we anticipated what was going to happen before it happened. Well, the please link to it in the show notes. This should be making me a sprint expert. But yeah, it was 49-44. Unlike these commentators you see now, I still I'm 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 part coach, part commentator. I have my stopwatch and I nailed it at 49-44, and then that's what the FAT came up as. Yeah, I don't know if it takes a sprint genius to realize someone who is splitting 49-4 in college is gonna be a good sprinter or a good 400 runner. But it makes me curious if you're Gabby Thomas, I mean, she's one of the fastest women ever in the 200 we should remember this she's run 2161 she got a bronze medal at the olympics and the silver medalist in that event is now no longer eligible to compete christine boma so 
I'm just curious if, but then you've also got Sharika Jackson, who just ran even faster last year. You got Elaine Thompson, hurrah, still kicking around. But the 400, we know Shawnee Miller Weibo is taking the year off to have a baby. I think she just had a baby, in fact. Congratulations to her and Michael Weibo. Marilady Paulino of Dominican Republic still around. And then we've got various possibilities of 400 hurdlers, maybe also running this event, maybe Sydney McLaughlin Lavroni, maybe Femke Ball, maybe Britton Wilson. There's a lot up in the air in this event. But I am wondering if all those hurdlers kind of stay in the hurdles. Is her path to gold, is it more likely in the 200 where she has to beat Jackson and the Jamaicans? Or is it more likely in the 400 where she's just run 49.6, but that's her first time running this for this event since 2021? If you're Robert, if you're her, do you consider a move to the 400 or do you stick in the 200 where she is the Olympic bronze medalist? Well, use the phrase that I was kind of surprised about, path to gold. I think if she wants to win gold, yeah, she should try the 400. But the 400 is kind of a weird event. Like the best people in the world don't seem to want to do it. Miller Weebo's out on maternity leave, says she doesn't want to run it when she comes back. I think Moe's an 800 runner. Sydney McLaughlin's a 400 hurdler. Femke Bowles a 400 hurdler. But you could go for the double. I'm not sure how hard the double is at USA's, but basically the 400 is, is running three consecutive days early at Worlds for the women. Now you'd have to run the 200 first round of the 200 on the same morning of the 400 final, which may make you tired for the 200 at the end. But I don't think she has to make a decision right now off of one 400. I, I would keep training, trying to stay healthy and see where it gets you. But, I, I think moving forward, she should certainly be a 2-4 runner. Yeah, I think run maybe another 400, maybe run a Diamond League later this season and see where it's at. But my instinct would be sticking the 200, but then if you hear other athletes are sort of bailing on the 400 and there's not going to be... It's, if it's just going to be Paulino that you would have to beat, that's when maybe you say, hey, I might shift to here. But I think we have to remember how good Gabby Thomas was in the 200 when she was healthy. So I'm still saying 200 to now, but it's certainly a situation worth monitoring from her. Now, should we point out Gabby Thomas, who at one point missed three drug tests, but had the third invalidated? If you want to mention that, certainly. I mean, it happened, but she was cleared eventually. So, And I'm not saying that because I think she's dirty. I'm just saying it because it's it's very easy in the sport to like, point out people's associations with this and that only when they test positive or only when they get three, three tests or four and blah, blah, blah. And the 200, 400 double is not possible at USA's. Unless you want to run a 200 an hour before the 400 final. Well, the good news for her is USA's is still two months away. So she doesn't have to choose right now. All right. It's time. Let's talk about the Doha diamond league opening day of the 2023 track and field season. Cinco de Mayo as well. So draw yourself a margarita and settle in high noon Eastern time for some world-class track and field. Bunch of events that intrigue me. We can either hit these one by one or we can just try to hit the highlights. I want to start women's steeple here. 
start list is a little... It's interesting to me for who's there, but also for who's not there. Emma Coburn and Val Constein, who just got a Nike contract. Congrats to her. They're both flying out to run this race. You've also got Beatrice Chepkoic, the world record holder. Jacqueline Chepkoic, world junior champion from a couple years ago. Makita Zabebe, bronze medalist at Worlds. But who's not here? Nora Gerudo, the reigning world champion. And also, Wakua Ketachu, the silver medalist from Worlds last year from Ethiopia. We wondered, would she be able to continue running this event? Uh, she's not entered in this event. That doesn't mean she's done for the year, but I did note that she wasn't among the entries. I'm I'm interested here. Can Emma Coburn kind of get back on track? She John, hold back. on. You're all over the place there. Okay, okay. Gerudo okay. had a positive drug test. What you chew, the speculation is she's intersex and no longer eligible for this event. Yeah, sorry. It's, it, this is a difficult thing to address on a podcast, but I think that's as delicate as we can put it. So I'm interested by Co- how Cobone runs, but I'm also more going to be judging her on how she does at the World Championships. Like, she's always fairly solid on the Diamond League circuit. Last year, I guess I'm looking at her Diamond Leagues, 918 at Pre, but then she was 907 at Monaco, 914 Brussels, 920 Zurich. They weren't as good as in previous years, but I think the the big thing is she used to be known as this big championship performer. She'd run her best to the championships, and last couple of years hasn't happened. She had a very poor race in Tokyo and then was only eighth at Worlds last year. So... She's 32 years old now. Season opener, I'm not going to be saying, oh, it's the end of the world, but I'm definitely going to be interested to see, can she continue that consistent level? Is she still the woman to beat in the US in the steeplechase? She has never lost a US final in that event. Or is it going to be Courtney Frerichs or Courtney Wayman kind of overtaking her? So interested to see how Coburn opens up. And also she's running against some of the best steeples in the world. So how does she stack up? Yeah, I think it's a big race for her. I mean, granted, it's May. It'll be May what fifth, but she busted nine ten once last year. I feel like it used to be. I think it was three times. I'm looking here, 2019, 2021. But she was in a big race. The race went sub nine ten. She would go sub nine ten. That didn't happen last year, a lot of the time. So, can she get this back on track? And also, I'm interested to see how Gerudo's departure from this event affects how fast it is up front. Last year, we saw when she's running up from the front at Worlds, we had four people break eight minutes. We had these really fast times, but now you're not going to have Gerudo leading the way. You're not going to have Getachu, certainly not in this race at least. Is this going to slow things down? You know, or is someone actually? We only had three women sub four, sub nine last year, but we did have Winfred Yabi run nine oh one. Like Abebe ran at eight eight fifty six in the World Championship final last year, but is she going to be running eight fifty six if she doesn't have a pacemaker basically? And Gerudo, I'm not sure. So I'm wondering if the times backslide at all in this event now that Gerudo's gone and not ripping everything from the front now. I don't know how it's going to play out, but I'm really excited about this because. It's just a huge race before Coburn. Like, with Gerudo gone, Chipkowicz running not nearly as fast as he used to, I think gold is on the table again for the Americans if they're running well. Coburn kept saying, like, 
I'm doing fine in practice. I'm having the workouts of my life, and it never came through last year. She's only 32. Can, can you know, was she forcing it? Will it come back this year? We'll find out. Yep. So some of these other events we got. Ryan Benjamin's in the men's 400 hurdles. No Warhol. They probably won't race against until Worlds, I'm guessing. And we know Dos Santos is probably out for the year. So he's going to be absent. Men's 800, Noah Kibet, Clayton Murphy. Got the Algerians, Sajardine Mula, Mouad Zahafi, the NCAA champion from last year at Texas Tech. That's big for me because I, I did watch the 800 live from Botswana on Saturday morning, and it was interesting. It was the large field. Swinsky was that, That's not true, Robert. There's no way you watched it live. That broadcast went out. That, not for that race. I watched it live. I'll repeat myself. It went out for me. I swear it wasn't on. I thought I watched it live, so I certainly watched the race. Pretty sure it was live. Anyway, Robert, go ahead and make your point. And by the way, the clock never started. Well, I thought I didn't get up a time for like two days. Swinsky's rabbiting. They did a good job of rabbiting without a clock. He just, I guess he's in his brain. He didn't even seem panicked that there was no, he didn't have a watch on or anything. He just rabbit out front. But it was a large field and coming off the, off the final turn, like basically Murphy's in dead last. He immediately, like though, comes off the turn and runs way wide. He goes out to like lane three, probably running like five wide, like he's going to mow down the field. And he doesn't move up really at all for like 50 or 60 meters. And then guys start tying up and he does pass like half the field in the last 20 or 30 meters, it looks like. And when I watched it initially, I was like, oh man, like he's in the last, he's moving. What's he doing? Why is he going wide? I kind of wasn't that impressed. And then I didn't know what the times were. But now that I've gotten the time, he, he's been listed as a 145.6. I'm pretty optimistic about it. I was like, he went wide thinking, I'm feeling good. I'm going to mow these guys down. He didn't mow them all down, but he mowed half of them down. And it doesn't take that long sometimes for things to totally click in the 800. So he's in this Doha 8. Last year, his seasonal best was only 145.2. If he's running 145.6 last week, if he can get into the 144s, who knows what's possible when World rolls around. Oh, I, I agree with you, Robert. I watched this race in Clayton Murphy. Yeah, he was only seventh, but he did lose to some pretty good guys. I think I was thinking the same way with you. This is a guy who's shown he usually times things for the championships more than most. He'll just race a lot, and he's not too worried if he's getting beat because he knows he's training through some of these things. I am, I'm still not sure if that's the official time. Tillis Tapia has it as 145.6 for Clayton Murphy, but World Athletics, the results has it as 150.0. So, and that's what he's listed on the start list as his season's best. His position in the race doesn't really change, but the time, I don't know. Did you time out this whole race, Robert, by hand? I did. Okay. And 145.6 would work well, but it, it did look like I was like, they're switching cameras a couple times, and it seemed like there was a slight glitch. I'm like, are they? I saw the World Athletics at 150. If it's 150, it's panic time. But if it's 145.6, it's just hard for me to believe that it would be 150 because only one guy went with Sawinski. So that would make me think that the, that the pace up front was pretty fast. 
they were like 50 low and the field would probably be like 51, 52, which would how they're going to run unless several seconds are missing here. So yeah, that shows the importance of a clock and breaking down these races. Like, could you imagine other people in major sports trying to break down a game when you don't actually know the final score? It's like, well, this team looked, or you know one team won, but you don't know what the margin of victory was. It's kind of more challenging. I also don't think it's time to panic if he runs 150.0. It's again, it's not like he got crushed by this field, but you're obviously going to be more encouraged by a 145. But it doesn't make any sense that a world-class field would go out hard with a rabbit and run 150. There's no way they did that. That doesn't make any logical sense. I agree with you on that. Okay, so men's 800, he'll give another good test there. All right, now we're getting to some of the good stuff. These final few races. Wait a second, wait a second. You guys were saying Eric Swinsky was racing this thing. You're proven wrong. He was a rabbit. That was on the Supporters Club podcast. Once again, if you want all the erroneous inside scoop, join the Supporters Club. Let's run.com slash subscribe. Guys, can you think about that? It's not cheap to get to Botswana. So they pay someone to fly to Botswana to rabbit at 800? Like, Eric Swinsky's the best rabbit in the world, no question. But these races, these meets are like, they don't have a lot of money. Like, I don't know. Or just Doha chip in some because he's got to get from the States to Doha. So Doha's really flooding the bill. Is it like a group thing? I want to know how this works. Like... Does Doha pay for Val Constein to fly over, or does she have to pay her own way over there? Because eighth place at a Diamond League, I think, pays what, like a thousand dollars? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I never asked about. I assume pretty much all of these athletes have flown in, but but the I mean, the cost of getting to Doha isn't cheap either. No, it's not. No, we need to have. Well, maybe we should have Val Constein on the show and ask her how finances work because she's she said her nike contract is not enough to have her quit her day job with stride so hey you know you would imagine she wouldn't i mean maybe she has now a nike travel budget and it's enough to go out and run a diamond league in doha but yeah i'm glad you mentioned that john because i'm a little late to the i didn't see the doha start list until last night at about 11 o'clock at night and i i saw Corey mcgee on there I tried to Instagram DM her and Val. I'm like, hey, can you guys come on the podcast tomorrow? I think they're both on a plane right now. So, and it's like a 12 hour flight. So, I mean, probably from the time I DM, they legit could be on a plane the entire time. So, maybe we will be talking to one of them this week. Yeah. I mean, the 1500 McGee is going to have an opportunity to do something that feels really good. We'll get to that in a second. But, all right. Here, here now we're getting to the good stuff. I just put this in chronological order. Women's 100. Kerry Richardson against the last two world champions in the 200 meters, Dina Asher-Smith, Sharika Jackson. This is going to be a serious test for Sha'Carri because Jackson, silver medalist at Worlds last year in the 100, gold medalist in the 200. Dina Asher-Smith always shows up. She very rarely has a bad race. You know, wins on the Diamond League circuit. Those are two women who have been around. They get it done. They're consistent on the big stage. Shakari, we know, is not. So how does she uh, how does she take on these athletes? Can she beat them? Does she get her ass handed to them? To her, she's also got Melissa Jefferson and Abby Steiner, the U.S. champions in the 100 and 200 last year. It's very exciting. It's a big test for Shakari. It's two of the best sprinters in the world. She's going up against. I'm very excited to see how this plays out. Yeah, this is the 
event of the meet for sure. I think from a U.S. perspective, even international buzz. Shakari moves the needle. Then you got Sharika Jackson in there. And I mean, Dean Asher Smith, John, you're half British. She's like the golden girl for British athletics. So, and pretty good if she's at her, I mean, really, really good if she's back to full strength. Yeah. I mean, she's run 10 8. She's just super consistent. You very rarely see Dean Asher Smith have a bad race. Uh, so she's, we know she's going to come to play, but Shakari, Shakari's personal best is much faster than Dina in the 100. So her ceiling, I would say, is higher. But these are the sort of, you get the Diamond League. It's just you show up and it's a one shot deal. You can't afford to do. I mean, the consequences aren't as dire as when Shakari bombed out in the 100 at USA's last year. Obviously, you're not going to end your season, but this is a significant test for her. And excited to see how it goes. Shariga Jackson, by the way, I was wondering, oh, is she going to be ready to rock in this thing? She ran 10.82 in Kingston two weeks ago, so she looks to be in pretty good shape. Should be a great race. And also, Melissa Jefferson, I know that she carried beat her a few weeks ago, pretty sure. But she's the U.S. champion. Abby Steiner, U.S. champion of the 200. I mean, T.T. Terry's in here who just won in Botswana. She's going to have American competition as well. Tiana Daniels as well. I should mention her U.S. Olympian. So it's not my favorite race, though. Well, then, I would say my favorite race. We'll get to it in a second. Is the men's two hundred. I want to talk about this men's three k first. But wait, 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 wait. Well, well, then can you have him turn in his resignation papers? The men's two hundred is your favorite race. Now, the men's three thousand is absolutely loaded. You've got. Lemetra Gurma, who just bet Daniel Coleman's world record in the, in the indoor 3000. He's the Olympic silver medalist in the steeple. He's racing. The Olympic gold medalist in the steeple, Elba Colley. Stewie McSwain, getting at Wally. Olympic 10,000-meter champion, Solomon Borrega. Berahu Aragawe. What did he do, John? He won the Diamond League final a couple years ago, and he's run... 726 indoors. Yeah. This is also the guy that always beats Grant Fisher. And, well, not true, but he beat him at the Olympics in the 10,000. But he got the silver, I think, at the World Cross Country this year. Or was it the bronze? No, it was the, it was the silver. And you've got one of the world's best 1,500-meter runners on the planet, Timothy Chariot. This thing is loaded. You've got the steeplers. You've got Chariot moving up. You've got Varega moving down. Okay, that's a good point. I, I think I like this space more than 200. I was looking men's 200 versus women's 100 because I like the Curly versus Michael Norman showdown. But yeah, this is this is a stacked race. Timothy Chariot's never run a 3K. This is his debut. And the great thing about Dohar is we don't always know what kind of shape these guys are in. We know some of them have been running cross-country or they ran fast indoors, but a lot of them, it's their first race for a while. So if you had to pick, you get the whole field here. Who you guys go? I think I'm going Gurma. I mean, the, the dude just ran 723 indoors. He's running a 3K. We know he runs fast on the circuit, on the Diamond League and the steeple. I think he's my pick, but there are so many guys here. who There are five guys who could win this race. 
I think that's a good pick, John. I mean, we know who's going to finish fourth, getting that Wally always finishes fourth at the Worlds and the Olympics. Poor guy. I feel like I am very curious to what Shuri can do if this is super fast. Like, can he stick with it? I feel like it might be a, a, a little bit far for him, but he kind of reminds me of Albacolli. I mean, Albacolli wins the steeple every year, but he just kind of stays close enough that he can get – then he outkicks the guys. I feel like maybe the barriers help him stay close enough in an all-out time trial. He may not be close enough. What does Borrega do? Super pumped about that. Germa has to be your favorite. He ran 7.23 indoors. Now maybe we're finding out indoors is as fast as outdoors. Especially with the shoes, but it's, uh, El Garouche ran seven twenty three, and then you've got Coleman at seven twenty point six seven. That rec- what's considered the greatest distance record on the books. I mean, can somebody get close to that this year? You think with the shoes, it's a different ball game, guys. Is this thing gonna go the three thousand? It just doesn't do it for me as an event usually, especially outdoors. I'm usually kind of bored, and Coleman's record is so good. Like, I love Coleman's record, and it was just so untouchable, but is it crazy to think? Why not? I mean, I haven't seen the paces for this thing, but, yeah, if he runs 723 indoors, you would think he might, it's not that far off, you know, you might want to take a crack at it at some point. I do think this race will go fast, though, because between him and Aragawi, those two guys like to run fast. And if they th- one of those two takes off, I think everyone else will follow. Chariot used to run, like to run fast from the front in the 15, but maybe it's a little different in the I mean, 3K. I mean, indoors. Didn't we write an article contemplating whether Grant Fisher could break the indoor roll record? If we're wondering that, I think you could easily post, write an article posing whether... Daniel Coleman's record could go down at this meet. Yeah, could a guy who broke Daniel Coleman's world indoor record break Daniel Coleman's world outdoor record? I, I think it's within the realm of possibility, but who knows what, how fast they're going to be going. And you'll see you need to have a good rabbit. Careful, John. I'm your boss. Don't make me look stupid. I'm not. I'm saying I'm agreeing with you. I'm saying it's... <laughs> It's an absolutely logical thing to do. If we want to just get clicks and go crazy, so yeah, just bill everything as a world record attempt. But I don't, I haven't heard enough to know whether that's going to be the case or not. All right, moving on to this 200. The reason I'm excited about it is just because you got some star power here. You've got the 100 meter world champion against the 400 meter world champion, and they're racing against each other in a 200. Michael Norman, Fred Curley. Simple as that. It's pretty freaking awesome. You've also got the Olympic champ. Andre de Grasse, granted he ran poorly last week. Farnbolo, who was fourth at Wells last year. Kenny Benarek. I mean, I think Curley has to be the favorite here. Um, but Norman has the fastest, the, well, actually the fastest PB. De Grasse is 1962, then Benarek in 1968. Norman, 1970. Fred Curley, 1976. Maybe I'm just thinking back to him winning easily in Australia, against Australia in Australia against a pretty shallow field. But yeah, when you said it, I think blank has to be the favorite. I thought for sure you'd say Michael Norman. No, no. Michael Norman's the favorite, John. 
I remember Michael Norman beating Noah Lyles in a Diamond League 200. It may be the only time Noah Lyles actually has ever lost a Diamond League 200. Is, is that the case? I believe that is correct, yes. So if you're the only guy ever to beat Michael Norman, excuse me, Noah Lyles in 200, I don't know. I, I don't. Fred Curley doesn't have a history of running good 200s. It's sort of, I don't know how he's so good at the 400, so good, good at the 100 and not good at the 200, but I'm liking Michael Norman on this one. Okay, actually, the more I think about it, you might be right. Because I'm, I'm just looking at Norman. I'm. It's the recency bias that's playing in. Michael Norman just ran the 100, and he didn't look all that good, and I'm worried about it. But then I'm looking. Fred Curley actually hasn't raced since he was in Australia two months ago. He ran 20.32 in the 200, then 44.65 in the 400. But Michael Norman ran three Diamond League 200s last year. 19.83, 19.95, 19.76. So, yeah, I think... Maybe you are right that Norman should be the favorite. And then Kenny Benarek usually is pretty consistent, but he you know, he's medaled silver the last two world championships in the two hundred, but he only ran twenty point three seven in the two hundred a few weeks ago in Miramar, so I'm not quite sure what to expect here, Robert. What do you say? That's why they run the race, John. That's why they run the race. It's kind of interesting. You, we'd always assume that Curley would be great at the 200, and he hasn't been yet. But somehow he's amazing at the 400 and 100. So it's kind of interesting. Women's 1500. Faith Kepier gone. She's done it all except for the world record. I don't think she's going for that here, but she said she wants to get it this year. We'll see what kind of fitness she's in. She's got a bunch of young Ethiopian challengers. Here at Meshesha's in there. She ran... 357 last year. Yeah, Daruba Welteji, fourth at Worlds last year in the 800. Farini Hailu, fourth at Worlds last year in the 1500. Lem Lem Hailu, the world indoor champion in the 3K. They're all sub four women or thereabouts. So it's going to be exciting. To see, like my question, they're all 22 years old or younger. And Kipigon is 29, but coming off one of her, arguably her best season ever last year will she show any signs of slippage or will one of these Ethiopians sort of rise up and say hey I'm going to be the the challenger I mean we do have we're missing the best Ethiopian Gudaf Sagai she's not in this race but I am curious if any of these other women whether it's Frawini Hailu or Meshesha or Welteji can one of them step up and close that gap I, ex- I mean I expect Kipigon to win but It'll be interesting to see what the pecking order is among the Ethiopians. Plus, Corey McGee's going over to run this. Abby Colwell and Jessica Hall coming up from Australia to run here. So is Georgia Griffith. So a few storylines to watch. This might be the chance for Corey McGee to go sub four. I mean, she could easily stay in California, right, and run the track meet. Track fest, excuse me. There's not as many diamond, you know, points available, but if you're a four flat 1500 meter runner like her, you're going to make worlds of your top three at USA. So she, it's not like she needs the points, right? No, but you might want the points to try to get in the diamond league final, which is in Eugene this year. So kudos to her and everyone else for going over there. To me, it's almost like two races, Kip Yegon versus the field. And then how do these Westerners stack up against the Ethiopians? How do they all stack up against Kip Yegon? Okay, so that is Doha 
on Friday. We will have our post-meet show. Are we going to try to go live right at 2 p.m. when this thing ends, or 2.10, something around there, I would think. So you can either listen live, or you can sign up for the Supporters Club, letsrun.com slash subscribe to get access to the show. Anything else you guys want to cover? I do have a little hypothetical here about full marathon season, but we've already had a pretty packed show, so I'm not sure if we want to wait until next week to discuss it. Let's briefly do it. Would you rather see Elliot Kipchoge versus Evans Chabet in New York City this fall or Elliot Kipchoge versus Kelvin Kipton in Berlin? Well, I know what they say. Go with your gut instinct. I have my answer. Weldon, do you have yours? It wasn't just a rhetorical question. That was an actual question. Wow. I'm shocked. Like, I love the New York City Marathon. I usually would say they need to battle it out in New York, but no. I want to see Kipton and Kipchoge in Berlin because I think Kipton would be a changing of the guard. It would just be, you would see it right there. We got a new king of the jungle. My initial response was, I want to see Kipchoge versus Chibet. But my rationale was similar to Weldon's. I don't want to see Kipchoge just get destroyed in Berlin. By Kipton and have the world record be destroyed as well. But maybe that would be good now. I don't know why all of a sudden I'm kind of anti-Kipchoge. Let's just see like this. I like to see the myth, the myth, the popping of the myth. The popping of, we've already seen it in science with Anthony Fauci. Oh, sorry, John, just kidding. Um, you know, the popping, we, we create these icons and he has been amazing. But now it's like, I don't know why, I'm, it's sick that I'm enjoying turn, tearing him down a little bit. But I guess we already saw, well, this is we have a change in the guard. What do you mean? We just saw Chabet destroy him in, in Boston. If he destroys him again in New York, well, I guess we could use the excuse of, oh, maybe Kipchoge is not good at hills. If Kipchoge loses on a flat race, then we realize people are clearly better than him, right? He loses to bed in Boston, and he loses on the flat course. So, what about you, John? I think I'd like to see him in New York. I think I want to see him take another crack at a course like this. Uh, because I think... You could argue it's possible Chibet is always that Kiptum's already fitter than Kipchoge. And it might be that we're now in the era of Kelvin Kiptum. I'm not I'm not sure about that, but I do think if Kipchoge shows up and he, look, if he shows up, either of these matchups would be a dream. If he wins, he's sort of sending a statement that I'm back. But if he shows up and he, he takes his licks in Boston and he comes back to New York and he's like, screw it, I was beaten once on one of these technical courses, but I'm going to go back. I'm going to take another run at Chibet and then beats him. That to me is an awesome story. I think it shows he's not afraid to, I mean, again, either of these, Kipchoge races the best of the best consistently. So I wouldn't say he's really afraid of anyone, but I would rather see a showdown on that course in New York with Chibet than just a world record chase and kept against Kipton. I like the way you phrase that. And if he goes to Berlin, might he be helping Kipton break his record? Because they'd both be pushing the pace, pushing the pace, pushing the pace. So that's a good rationale. I guess I'm so excited about Kipton. I could just see Kipton run Berlin by himself. 
Like if they say Kiptum's in Berlin this year, I, maybe I don't even need Kipchoge. I will have to watch that because I think the world record could go. That's how good I think Kiptum is now. And I could watch the head-to-head matchup in New York. Either way, there's a lot of intriguing plot lines. Yeah. Just please, please don't go to Sydney. Run either Berlin against Kiptum or Chibet against New York. The, the sport needs that this fall. One of those two races, I'll be happy with either of them. God, if we get Sydney, we'll have to hear some excuse of, oh, I'm growing the sport. Speaking of which, do not let me appear on next week's show unless I have the clip of me. It was dutifully researched by one of our listeners a few weeks ago. I said, when did I first say Elliot Kipchoge would never win the Boston Marathon? They determined, this guy determined it was on the second show of the Tokyo Supporters Club podcast, even though he's not a Supporters Club member. It was a woman well, then, who found this for you, oh. I believe. Well, then please tell me how to go back and look for that. I will look for it this week and present the club next week. I can't wait for this to happen because Robert is going to have this. He's going out of his way to take this victory lap after Kipchoge has run Boston once. And then I'm going to remember the date of this episode and I'll play it after the 2024 Boston Marathon when Kipchoge wins and totally proves you wrong. And then hopefully no one has a record of this episode where I said I enjoyed watching the king be knocked down and enjoying it sickly because... He'll be back on top. It'll be a redemption story. Oh, I thought, John, you were going to remember this episode for what Robert said before we aired and were recording and he would get canceled forever. Well, yeah. Mo- I mean, there. I feel like there are cancelable things on every episode, but this one was... I mean, it's just... Yeah, I don't know. I don't even remember what it was, but I just remember it was we were recording. Oh, I remember. It was a... Alrighty, John. When you said you want to keep talking, I thought you guys were going to be talking about the big story today we didn't even get to. The Veer High track coach, the runner who pulled his guy on off the line, or tried to pull him off the line at the 1,600 meters. This kid was supposed to triple in the 800, two-mile, and 1,600 at the district meet. Big controversy. I'll link to the thread on Let's Run. He has been canned from his job. Anyone knows the details of that story, email us. But... Until Friday, join today if you want to hear our Doha recap show as a podcast. Let's run.com slash subscribe. If you're in California or Arizona, I've driven from Flagstaff to California before. They have the thing called airplanes as well. Vegas, you can get to California pretty easily. Go to the Sound Running Meet this weekend. If you need a VPN, remember. NordVPN, check it out. Let's run.com slash VPN. Till Friday.